It's interesting what happens in the, uh, the course of a week that reminds you of, of your need for the Lord to keep you day by day. Now, it's just, not just for people in the pew, that's for pastors as well. I mean, <laughs> this week, uh, I think maybe Thursday afternoon, evening, I was uh, uh, finishing sermon prep or, or in the middle of sermon prep and feasting richly on the word. And then I got in an argument with my wife and said uh, things I shouldn't have said, allowed my heart to, to respond in anger. That's not why Stephanie's not here. She's actually in the nursery. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a, uh, a reminder, I texted a few brothers afterwards, of how much I need the Lord, of how deeply sinful I am, of how often I make the wrong choice, how much I, too, am guilty of sin and need the Lord's grace and forgiveness. Friends, that's why we come to church. We don't come to church because we're all okay, because we all have lived perfect, sinless lives. We come to church because we need a word of grace. I need that as much as you, and praise God that week after week, especially as we've been in Matthew, the Lord keeps showing us our sin, but showing us a Savior. Showing us our guilt, but showing us one who forgives our guilt. And this morning, we see that clear in our passage in Matthew chapter 27. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27? And this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 26 together. Matthew 26, looking at verses 1 through 26. Did I say 26? Matthew 27, of course, 1 through 26. We read, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they set them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, 
so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of uh, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Here's what I think is the main idea of these first 26 verses of Matthew 27. The main idea of our passage this morning. We often wrongly choose sin. Instead of the Savior, but their salvation. Because the sinless Savior chose to die instead of sinners. You can find it printed in your bulletin as well. Main idea, we often wrongly choose sin instead of the Savior. But there's salvation. Because the sinless Savior chose to die instead of sinners. Our passage this morning begins with with a bit of setting, moving the narrative along for us from the previous scene and setting us up for the stage or the events that are to come. We read in verse one that it's morning. Literally, the Greek translation, the Greek text says that it's early morning. It's early Friday morning. The previous night, as we read last week in chapter 26, the chief priests and the elders had sent officers to arrest Jesus. And they held a kind of private trial at the high priest Caiaphas's palace. There they determined Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and he deserved death. But here we read that mourning breaks and murder is still on their minds. Seemingly, seemingly the whole number of religious leaders are now gathered and they collectively take counsel against Jesus to, to put him to death. Oh, you notice how Matthew continues to use those kind of terms that they, in chapter 26, plotted together here in the beginning of 27. They take counsel together against Jesus. It's meaning in Matthew's initial readers' minds to draw them back to Psalm 2, where we read that the The rulers and the kings take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
here the, the rulers and the leaders take counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And so they bind him and lead him away to be delivered to Pilate, the governor. These first two verses seem to just set the setting, but they are important for a, a couple of reasons. For one, they provide a significant historical marker. Pilate, otherwise known as Pontius Pilate, was a real historical figure. He was the Roman governor of Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. Rome ruled Judea directly through governors during the time. They'd moved on from, from ruling through the Herodian dynasty, as we read in the beginning chapters of Matthew, that the King Herod was the king. They, they'd moved on from the, the Herods that are kings that they ruled through to now ruling through governors that they set over these Jewish provinces. Pilate filled the role of governor, of ruler over the Jews, over Judea for about a decade. Now, now why is that important? It was because... Well, outside evidence or outside sources are not needed to prove the Bible to be true. Right? The Bible is self-attesting. It has its own kind of internal witness. While, while we don't need outside sources to prove the Bible to be true, nevertheless, you can look at outside sources. You can search the annals of history from first century historians like Josephus or Philo. And you can find figures in the biblical story who really lived and who were really written about. I mean, if, if the Bible was made up, if the stories in the Bible were not true, then Matthew and the other gospel writers would not use the names and titles of actual people who lived at the time and who supposedly dealt with Jesus. I mean, just a little bit of Google searching. A little bit of historical fact-checking would easily show their names, but not Jesus in the history books. But, you know, when you search history, what you find is not only a real historical pilot, you also find a real historical Jesus. This man really existed. He really lived. He really died. You really must believe what the Bible says about Jesus. These first two verses provide a significant historical marker. I mean, these first two verses also provide a significant biblical marker, a significant redemptive history marker. You see, because while the Jewish leaders had wanted to put Jesus to death, they did not have the power to do so. Capital punishment belonged solely to Rome. And so while the chief priests and the elders had come to a verdict, they needed the Roman governor, Pilate, to confirm and to enact that verdict and to send Jesus to die. Which is significant. Because the scriptures talk about sim not simply that Jesus would die. The scriptures talk about how Jesus would die. Way back in the Old Testament, you see little vignettes pop up that, that talk about how the Messiah would die. They don't make full sense when you read them in the Old Testament. But when you start putting those puzzle pieces together and lead into the New Testament, you say, oh, that's what it was doing. When I mean, you see little vignettes like in Deuteronomy 21 that the cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Okay, okay. who's going to be on a tree? Or when you read Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant would be pierced. Or you pierce those wrists and the 
that foot and that, that side. I mean, Jesus himself says in, in John 12, 32, he said, when I, the son of man, am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And John says in the very next verse, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on a cross and crucified. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus was even more explicit. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And this is before these events happen. We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And then they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Well, that's important because crucifixion was uniquely the Roman method for execution. And so this delivering Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor, in verse 2, is not simply the product of the religious leader's vile scheming. It is the unfolding of God's sovereign and wise and merciful plan to save us. That doesn't excuse, excuse the religious leaders or anyone else's actions in putting Jesus to death. We'll see throughout this passage that people are constantly making the wrong choice to kill Jesus and then try to wipe their hands clean. No one is innocent. But also we see that God is the one ultimately in control. While we make the wrong choice, it's God's sovereign choice to sacrifice his son. And it's Jesus' willingness to give his life as a sacrifice that should lead us both to repentance and to worship. As we walk through the rest of this passage this morning, I want us to focus specifically on, on three wrong choices that we see people make throughout this passage. Three wrong choices that we often make throughout our lives. And in light of that, see how stunning it is that Jesus still chooses to go to the cross for us. So three wrong choices we see in this text that will serve as the three points in the rest of the sermon. People wrongly choose, number one, regret instead of repentance. We see that in verses 3 through 10. Regret instead of repentance. Number two, people wrongly choose sin instead of the Savior. Sin instead of the Savior. We see that in verses 11 through 23. And point number three, people wrongly choose fear of man instead of fear of God. We see that in verses 24 through 26. Fear of man instead of fear of God. Point number one, people wrongly choose regret instead of repentance. Verse 3 somewhat interrupts the narrative of Jesus' trial before the chief priests and rulers in the previous passage and his trial before Pilate in the few verses that, that are going to follow. It takes a kind of interruption, a kind of break, and here puts the focus back on Judas who betrayed Jesus. We read in verse 3 that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned to death, with a death sentence by the Jewish leaders and soon one final sentence to come from the Roman governor, when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned to death, that Judas changed his mind. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what did Judas think was going to happen when he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders? Did he think they were just going to give him a firm talking to? 
that they were going to scold him sharply and then send him away? I think it makes the point that sin never shows its true colors. It never tells us the full story. It only displays the immediate and temporal benefits of giving in to temptation. It never reveals the end of the thing. Judas's sin of betrayal only showed him the immediate gain of 30 pieces of silver. It didn't show him any of the subsequent guilt that would come, realizing that his actions would lead to a man being innocently executed. So friends, before you give in to temptation, you need to deeply consider where it will lead and deeply consider, is it worth it? Judas learned too late that his sin was not worth it. And now here he is trying to compensate, trying to make up, trying to undo what he'd done wrong. And just notice the language that's that's used of Judas. It, It sounds like Judas genuinely repents. I mean, note the the three things that Judas does that seem to fall in line with genuine repentance. Or look at verse three. First, we read he he changed his mind. Second, he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He made restitution, which is often one of the main fruits of real repentance giving back what you've taken. I mean, remember the tax collector Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, showing real repentance by repaying the people he defrauded. Third, Judas confesses his sin. He says in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But all Judas's actions as genuine as they seem, only add up to him being remorseful, but not truly repentant. There is a difference, you know. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly grief produces repentance, whereas worldly grief, worldly sorrow, worldly regret produces death. We see that here with Judas, a worldly regret rather than a godly repentance. I mean, look closely at the details. Judas in verse three changed his mind, but a changed mind is different from a changed heart. Changed feelings or changed attitudes about a thing ultimately need to find their grounding in a changed heart focus of why the thing was wrong in the first place and who the thing offended and what you need to do about it. But for Judas, his heart was set on himself, which led him to betray Jesus in the first place. Well, his heart is still set on himself even after betraying Jesus. He is the most offended party. His guilty conscience is the thing that most needs to be assuaged or appeased. And and look to where he goes to find peace. To the chief priests. He confessed his sin to them instead of confessing his sin to God. But it was God who was most offended by his sin. 
It is God who is most offended by our sin. It is to him first that we must confess and must turn from our sins. I mean, throughout the Bible, we see that. Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, when approached by Potiphar's wife to sleep with her, he refused, saying, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? Potiphar would have been offended if Joseph betrayed his trust and slept with his wife. But God would have been most offended. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, after David has committed the horrible act of adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed, he prayed to God against you and you only have I sinned. Our sin is ultimately against a good and holy God. And all the guilt and regret we might feel towards our sin must first be directed towards him in understanding that he hates it and that he will judge us. And it must result in us turning away from it and asking him for forgiveness. But that's not what Judas does. He seeks solace from the chief priests and the elders. And when he doesn't get it from them, when they don't absolve him of his sins, When they incredulously say, your guilt is your problem. What's it got to do with us? Well, well, then verse 5 says that Judas threw the money in the temple and went and hanged himself. You know, men are always harsher than God. Men are always harsher than God. Always less willing to forgive. Had Judas... Horrible as his sin was, repented of his sin and turned to God for forgiveness, he would have received it. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that all who turn from their sin and turn to Christ in repentance and faith will be saved. I mean, Peter committed a treacherous act of betrayal too, but Peter repented and trusted Jesus and was forgiven and restored. Conversely, Judas turned not to God, but to the chief priests and elders in remorse and regret, and then turned to death by his own hands as seemingly the only way to clear his guilty conscience. But he was not cleared. He was rather condemned, cutting himself off from any chance of forgiveness by taking matters into his own hands and cutting off his life. Friends, I pray pray you would hear me here with as much heartfelt affection and as much genuine compassion and as much earnest warning as I can muster as I talk a few words about suicide. Suicide is sad. Suicide is incredibly sad. And suicide is incredibly sinful. It is a sin that you should not commit. Whatever the circumstances are, suicide, hear me on this, whatever the circumstances are, suicide is never the better option. Suicide is always the wrong choice. In a room maybe of 50, 60, 
I don't doubt there's someone among us this morning who has contemplated suicide or right now is contemplating suicide. Consider it the Lord's kindness to have you here this morning to hear this message. The Lord does not want you to go down that route. Maybe like Judas, you feel like it's the only way you can deal with a guilty conscience. Young people, maybe it's something over something seemingly small overall, but big in your world. Maybe you've coasted all semester and are on the verge of, of failing some courses. Or maybe you've committed some horrible sin or crime and you feel like death is a better option than facing your parents or the police. Maybe you're a member here and some secret sin is eating you up inside. You feel like you can't let anyone else know about it because it is so shameful. And perhaps you feel like it's going to come out soon. People are going to know the real truth about you. And before it does, before you have to face other people, you feel like death is a better option. Friends, it is not. There may be real consequences for your actions, real consequences for your sin. They might be weighty consequences. But nothing is weightier than the consequences of trying to bear your own sins before a holy God. Trying to atone for your sins by your own death. Friends, fall upon the Lord even with the most gross and grotesque sins. He sent his son to atone for your sins by his death. You cannot atone for your sins by your death. Don't take your sins and your guilt upon yourself. Take your sins and your guilt to the Lord and turn away from them. Repent. Don't just be remorseful. Don't just be regretful. Repent and you will be forgiven. Friends, God forgave Abraham of lying. God forgave Moses of murder. God forgave Rahab of prostitution. God forgave David of adultery. God forgave Peter of betrayal. And no matter what you have done, God in Christ Jesus will forgive you. If you turn away from your sins and trust in him. Amen. Do you believe that? That whatever you have done, however bad you feel about yourself, the Lord is willing and able to save you this morning. Come to me, he says. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. You, you got a heavy conscience, a, a heavy, guilty conscience. Give it to the Lord. He'll give back to you a light load as you walk in him. You trust in him. I pray you'd believe that. And that that would lead you to totally turn away from all of Satan's temptations to have you ever take your own life. That is not a better way. The devil is a liar when he leads you to think that that's going to be a better choice. Amen. Friends, Judas here made the wrong choice. I also pray the reality that we see in this passage. That guilt can lead someone to kill themselves. 
I pray that the reality of that would make us especially gracious and compassionate and caring and pursuitful and prayerful and biblical in how we care for sinners. Yes, we want to call every single sin, sin. But friends, even more importantly, we want to call every single sinner to find repentance and faith and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you harbor some sins in your heart and mind as too egregious to be forgiven of? I wonder if the way you talk about certain people's sins, other people's sins, give the perception that those sins could never be forgiven of. How is it that you talk about same-sex attraction or homosexuality or drug addiction or adultery? or pornography. I wonder, is your rhetoric turned up against certain sins so much that anyone actually struggling with those sins feels they can never confess them, that they can never be forgiven of them? Is your stance so strong that other people feel like if their stance is that bad, what must God's be like? Friends, we must not just point out sin. We must point people to a Savior. By grace, we can be saved. Friends, if you need that grace right now, just quietly in your heart pray. No matter what you've done, the Lord will save you. Sadly, it's not what the religious leaders did in this passage. I mean, just notice the despicable way they respond to Judas. Here comes a man who recognizes his own sin and confesses the weightiness of it. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And yet they respond dismissively. (laughs) What's that got to do with us? That's your problem. Deal with your own dirty conscience. I pray no religious leader or lay person, no minister or member here would ever display such a calloused attitude towards people, would ever display such a casual attitude towards sin. I pray we'd constantly be leading people to the cross, to the grace of God to clear us of our guilt and of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The religious leaders here also made the wrong choice Choosing to let Judas leave weighed down with remorse instead of leading him to repent and instead of themselves feeling any need to repent. Instead, just notice how blind they are and how they talk about the 30 pieces of silver that Judas returned. I mean, they they quibble in verse 6 that the law won't allow them to put it in the treasury since it was blood money. That it is blood money does not strike their consciences at all that it is money they paid to Judas to put an innocent man to death does not bother them at all that it's money that Judas returned himself feeling guilty and that afterward he went and hanged himself for that guilt does not bother them at all nothing tenderizes their consciences that they themselves need to repent they instead regret he can't even use his money going to treasury in the temple for religious purposes. And now I need to figure out what to do with it. 
They end up going to buy a potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners or strangers, the text tells us. But even in all this, notice how God's ultimate plan is unfolding. Verse 8 says this was in fulfillment of what the prophet Jeremiah said. And then the quote there is a combination of passages from Jeremiah and Zechariah. Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah 11 talking about 30 pieces of silver being used for a potter's field. As one commentator notes, Matthew reminds us that no element of Jesus' final hours was accidental. Even minor details, such as the use of the blood money, find their place in God's plan to redeem his people. Matthew will never let us forget that all things happen according to the Lord's plan of redemption. Judas never saw that redemption. Because he made the wrong choice of regret and remorse instead of repentance. He made the wrong choice of suicide instead of seeking forgiveness. Saints, don't you make the wrong choice as well. Repent and run to God for relief and rescue and he will save you. But, you know, we often make the wrong choice also of choosing sin rather than the Savior. The second thing, second wrong choice we see in this text, sin instead of the Savior. After the kind of aside in verses 3 through 10 telling us the fate of Judas, verse 11 picks up naturally where verse 2 left off. Verse 2 left off telling us that Jesus had been delivered by the chief priests and elders over to, to Pilate, the governor. And verse 11 picks up with Jesus now standing before the governor. And look at the question that Pilate asked Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, why did Pilate ask that question? Well, because that's the charge that the religious leaders brought to Pilate when they handed Jesus over to him. I mean, internally, their their little mock trial led them to condemn Jesus to death because he placed himself equal with God. Uh, They charged him as being guilty in their eyes of blasphemy. But that charge would not move the pagan governor, Pilate. He could care less if Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. Yeah, me too, probably, right? So the chief priests and elders need to bring him a different charge that would actually catch his attention. This man, Pilate, he claims to be the king of the Jews. He's a political rival, governor. Someone threatening your rule and threatening Rome's rule. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, the gospel writer Luke tells us that the chief priests and the elders told Pilate, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. It's an utter lie. And Jesus never said to withhold giving tribute to Caesar. In fact, he encouraged what belongs to Caesar, Caesar, give to Caesar. But they, the religious leaders, freely chose to serve their sinful schemes. They presented Christ as a king who was rivaling Caesar and knew that Pilate would need to take such, any such claim as serious. So Pilate asked Jesus, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, you have said so, which is a strange way to respond. But it's intentional. 
on one hand, Jesus is affirming, yes, I am a king. I, I am Messiah. But it's a qualified affirmation. I'm not the kind of king that they, they're presenting me as. I'm not the kind of king that you think I would be. No, no I, I'm not some earthly king that's worried about political affairs. Are you a king? You have said so. But then that's all that we hear from Jesus. These little four words, you have said so to Pilate here, are the last words that Matthew records Jesus saying to any other people before he dies on the cross. Other people have plenty to say to Jesus and about Jesus, but Jesus does not return a single word. The point is highlighted in verses 12 through 14. The chief priests, we read, accused him even more and more with more charges. But we read in verse 12, he gave no answer. So that Pilate asked, don't you hear how many things they are testifying against you? Verse 14, but he gave no answer. Not even to a single charge. It's in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And verse 14 says it greatly amazed Pilate. I mean, here was this man on trial before the most powerful authority who could determine his fate. And here are these other people casting all these condemning charges against him. And here is this man, Jesus, saying absolutely nothing. I mean, Pilate has presided over hundreds, maybe thousands of these proceedings, but he'd never seen someone not defend himself, not seek to save his own life. Little did he know that Jesus came to seek and to save the lives of the lost and was willingly going to lay down his life to accomplish that purpose. And yet, that didn't lift the blame from others who sought to take his life. But Pilate desired to spare Jesus' life by offering to release him. We learn in verse 15 that it was his custom to release one prisoner every year, whoever the Jews wanted at the feast of the Passover. It was probably a way for Pilate to, to keep the peace among the, the many people who flooded into Jerusalem during the Passover to try to curry some favor among them. One such prisoner who would be a prime candidate for release was Barabbas. Uh, verse 16 tells us that he was a notorious, a well-known prisoner. He was well-known because he was well-liked, even though he committed terrible crime. Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 15, Mark tells us that Barabbas had committed murder in the insurrection. Barabbas was no ordinary man, was no ordinary murderer. In the eyes of many Jews, he was a hero, an insurrectionist, a rebel, a freedom fighter. He was someone actually bold enough to stand up to Roman forces and to fight back against their occupation of Israel. Amen. He was a popular man. But in Pilate's estimation, no more popular than Jesus. 
I mean, sure, Pilate, surely Pilate had heard the reports in his province. I mean, just five days earlier than this text, five days previous, on the previous Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the whole town was in the stir. Everyone, it seems, was yelling in Jesus' presence to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. The crowds loved Jesus. But Pilate asked the crowds in verse 17, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? And Pilate prefers that Jesus get rescued. I mean, he's already noted his astonishment at Jesus' quiet courage in the face of opposition. And verse 18 tells us that Pilate knows that the Jewish leaders don't really have a legit charge against Jesus. They're just jealous of him, envious of him. And add to that that verse 19 tells us that Pilate's better half, his wife comes with a message of a dream that she had. Probably better yet, a nightmare that tormented her all night long. So that she tells her husband concerning Jesus, have nothing to do with that righteous man. There was every incentive for Pilate to want Jesus released. And seemingly, every reason for the crowds to release him. Again, just listen throughout this entire chapter so far how Jesus is described. Even Judas earlier in verse 4 had to confess that Jesus was innocent. Pilate's wife in verse 19 says he was righteous. Pilate has acknowledged that Jesus was guiltless, not worthy of death, just someone the religious leaders hated. If Judas who betrayed Jesus could call him innocent. And if pagan people like Pilate and his wife could recognize Jesus as righteous and blameless, then surely the Jewish people as a whole would have the same attitude towards Jesus and probably even a better attitude towards Jesus. I mean, especially considering how he entered into Jerusalem, especially hearing about all the mighty works that he had done. Surely they would pick innocent, righteous, holy, mighty Jesus to be rescued. But verse 20 tells us the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas's release and to destroy Jesus. To choose the murderer over the one who'd done no wrong. To choose the sinner instead of the sinless savior. And so after giving the people time to deliberate, Pilate comes back and asks in verse 21, which of the two shall I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? And astonishingly, they all respond, Barabbas. Amen. Well, Pilate asks in verse 22, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? King, Messiah, anointed one. I mean, the words should have been ringing in every Jewish person's ears. This Jesus claims to be the Christ, the Messiah that God long ago promised to rescue his people. The, the mention of Christ, a Messiah, should have caused them to meditate on God's promises of a Messiah and to mull over what they knew of Jesus and if he could really be the but before they allow their hearts and minds to confirm and be convinced of Jesus' messiahship, of his kingship, they respond that he cannot be. Mm 
We will not have him as our king. Instead, we must murder him. Give us the murderer. And as for Jesus, crucify him. Verse 22 says, they all said it. Let him be crucified. For what reason, Pilate asked, what evil has he done? No answer can be given because no evil has ever been committed by Jesus. But their minds are set on evil. Charges and evidence at this point do not matter at all. They simply want blood, and so they shout all the more, overpowering Pilate's mere voice, let him be crucified. What a striking scene. Demands for a known criminal, a man really guilty, a rebel to be released, and for an innocent man to be killed in the most cruel way by crucifixion. If I were there, you might say, I would have done differently. I would have stated the minority opinion. Surely I would have chosen Jesus and not Barabbas to be released. Are you so sure? How can you be so sure? I mean, even today, you and I find ourselves making the wrong choice. Letting sin live in our lives, free reign, and killing any thoughts of Jesus' kingship over us. Daily we say, give us Barabbas. Give us what Barabbas represented for the Jews. Freedom. I mean, Barabbas, again, was a freedom fighter. He vowed to rescue the Jews from Roman oppression. We often want our Barabbases. Whatever gives us freedom from the oppression of sexual restraint. Whatever gives us freedom from the oppression of the gloominess of hardship, even if it's the the mere temporary escape that drunkenness or highness gives us. We want freedom from the oppression of rules and rulers over us telling us what to do. Give us Barabbas is what we so often clamor. But what about Jesus, the Christ What about him? Our consciences constantly cry out. What about the Christ? What shall we do with him? And we often cry out, let him be crucified. So we can live life our own way. Oh, saints, don't be misled into thinking this could never be you. This is you and me. This is what has characterized us from birth and still too often presses in on our lives as we choose sin far too often instead of choosing the Savior. The remedy is not in disassociating yourself with the Jews of then, but it's in understanding how much we can identify with them in devaluing and seeking to destroy Jesus and yet seeing how determined he was to rescue us. You say, because as as horrible even as these actions are, choosing sinful Barabbas instead of sinless Jesus to be released, and choosing sinless Jesus instead of sinful Barabbas to be crucified, it ultimately was not man's choice. It was God's choice. 
The Son of God, Jesus Christ, chose this course, the sinless one, dying in the place of sinners to save us. Jesus was quite literally Barabbas' substitute. Barabbas deserved to die for his crimes. Barabbas was condemned to death. But Jesus Christ took his place. Jesus Christ died in his stead. Jesus was crucified and Barabbas was released. Friends, the bad news in this passage is that you and I can identify with the Jewish crowds calling for Jesus' death. But the good news in this passage is that you and I can also identify with Barabbas. Like Barabbas, we have committed crimes, committed sins, not just against country, but against a good and a holy God. And like Barabbas, we deserve to die because of our sins. But Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus Christ took our punishment. Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might live, so that we might be set free from the bondage of sin and death. I don't know Barabbas' testimony. The Bible doesn't record how the man lived the rest of his life. But, But considering the horrible fate that he avoided, because Jesus accepted being condemned in his place, he should have praised the Lord all the days of his life. But I don't need to worry about Barabbas' testimony because I have my own testimony. You have your own testimony of how the Lord Jesus Christ saved you from the most horrible punishment that you could possibly imagine. The pits of hell absorbing all the wrath of God forever. Jesus Christ instead took that wrath for us. He was our substitute, and instead he gave us eternal life because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free because God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you don't know that pardon, that absolute freedom, If you don't know that Jesus as your savior this morning, then you must not continue making the wrong choice of choosing your sin over him. Don't add to the wrong choice of rejecting so precious a promise of rescue and redemption. Turn from your sins this morning. Turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and know the true forgiveness, the freedom from all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins, he counts them against us none. He was condemned once and for all for sinners who trust in him and once and for all, all sinners who trust in him are forever freed, released. Barabbas wasn't going to go get crucified again for the same punishment. That punishment has already been paid by Jesus. It's been paid for us. Trust in Jesus Christ. If you're like, I don't know what to do with that. How do I trust Jesus? I think I want to do that, but I don't know how to do that. Talk to me at the door. Talk to someone else around you after service. That might not be an immediate 30-second conversation. That can be a several weeks, several months, several year project. We want to walk with you. The last thing we want you to do is to walk away from here. Still condemned. 
still choosing sin over the Savior. Jesus Christ doesn't want you to do that. Choose salvation in Christ over sin because Jesus chose to suffer and die for you to be saved. Lastly and briefly, we see a third wrong choice in this passage that we need to avoid. And that's number three, fear of man instead of fear of God. Fear of man instead of fear of God. Up to this point, you might read this passage sympathetic of only one person, of only one actor, one character, Pilate. uh, Judas is is guilty of Jesus' death. The religious leaders and the Jewish crowds are guilty of Jesus' death. Uh, Pilate seems to be the only one acting honorably, the only one working to secure Jesus' freedom. But Pilate's hands are not guilt-free. He is as implicated and guilty of sin in this text as everyone else is because of his wrong choice. I mean, although he knows Jesus is innocent and has been warned by his wife not to mess with this righteous man, Jesus, which as we really zoom out, we, we understand is really a sovereign warning from God. You know, God is the one working through that dream to warn Pilate to leave Jesus alone. With all these understandings, Pilate still goes along with the plan to put Jesus to death. Verse 24 says that when Pilate was gaining no ground in convincing the Jews to release Jesus instead of Barabbas, but instead that a riot was starting to break out, he took water and washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. If he didn't appeal to the Jews' demands, a full-blown, uh, full-blown, uh, full-out riot would have bro- broken out, which for Pilate would spell doom because a riot would catch Rome's attention and would signal to Rome that, Pilate, you're not doing your job well. Pilate, maybe we need to come replace you and put somebody else in your post if you can't keep track over these little measly Jews. So fearing what the Jews might do, start a riot, and fearing what his Roman superiors might do, relieve him of his duties, Pilate succumbs to the pressure and signs off on the death death wish for Jesus. The fact that he says his hands are clean is of no consequence. The fact that the Jewish people in verse 25 try to abdicate him of his responsibility saying, okay, let his blood be on us and our children, is of no consequence. What does God say about the matter? Pilate is guilty, just as guilty as everyone else, for his approval of sin and ultimately for his acting out in sin. Verse 25 says he signs off on the Jews' demands and releases Barabbas, but has Jesus scourged brutally beaten with a whip that will be embedded by pieces of bone and metal and whooped across the back over and over and over again. It is a ruthless punishment that Pilate puts Jesus through just to get to the crucifixion, right? He did it all and delivered Jesus to be beaten and delivered to death. Pilate made the wrong choice. He actually thought that what the Jews could do or what Rome could do was worse than what God would do to him for his sin. He swept aside his heavy conscience 
which kept pressing on him to free Jesus. And in order to win people's favor and to keep his position, he put Jesus to death. We've been there, haven't we? Esteeming the, the opinions of others over that of the Lord's. Casting aside our consciences telling us what we should do in favor of personal preservation or prosperity. Giving Jesus up in favor of things that we've set up as idols, whether it's jobs or positions or people or money. They become our gods and they often lead us to reject and refuse the true God. But even with that, the true God gave himself up for us. Unlike Pilate and unlike us, Jesus feared God more than he feared people. And he didn't cower in the face of the religious leaders or the crowds or even mighty Pilate. His aim ultimately was to please his father. And thank the Lord for it. Because what pleased the father was to crush his son. To put his son to death for our sakes so that we might be saved. Saints, we see from this passage that none of us are innocent. All of us are guilty of making the wrong choice of sin over the Savior. But praise God that there's salvation. Because the sinless Savior freely chose to die instead of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus, that you do not repay us as our sins deserve. But we hear our mocking voices crying out with the crowds, crucify him, crucify him. We see it too often in our lives on a daily and weekly basis. Crucify thoughts of Jesus as, as our king and give us our own desires. Oh, Lord, kill those thoughts as we consider Christ who was killed for us. Oh, make him precious to our hearts. Oh, let the sacrifice of Jesus, his amazing substitution in the place of sinners like us, move us to heartfelt repentance and worship of him. Oh, Lord, keep us from sinning more. Keep us from despairing of life or despairing of our sin. Keep us from felony remorse and lead us all to genuine repentance and faith. That we might all be delivered from our sins and live eternally with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.